Radio Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Hi there. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. This is episode 32, The Elizabethan Age, part four. Pirates, part three. The Ride of the Revenge. The Hunchback. God has fought for us. I don't have any guests to introduce this episode. It's a shame as I was holding a pirate episode for two old friends. One's a comedian and one's a filmmaker, and when they're together, they're hilarious. Sometimes defeat can burnish your reputation for invincibility as effectively as victory. Now, imagine what a couple of good comedians can do with a line like that. Sometimes defeat can burnish your reputation for invincibility as effectively as victory. That sounds paradoxical, but for the English of the time, their success at sea came about because they had God on their side. The tricky bit is how do you get an idea like that into your head? You need proof. The Spanish Armada of 1588 was one proof. Another was the ride of the revenge. The revenge was what we call a race-built galleon. A Spanish galleon was a huge ship with a lot of cargo-carrying capacity and a lot of cannons. Very suitable for Spain's worldwide empire since it could carry enough supplies for long ocean voyages. This cargo capacity traded off against speed and maneuverability, however. A race-built galleon, French innovation here by the way, see, I'm not an anti-French bigot after all, had one fewer deck, giving it a lower center of gravity, which allowed it to carry the same press of sail as a full-size galleon, so faster and more maneuverable. The Levant Company liked them for trading in the eastern Mediterranean, which meant passing through Barbary pirate-infested waters. Great for dealing with galleys. The Revenge was part of a small fleet set out to intercept the annual Spanish treasure fleet of 1592. This is an example of strategic thinking combined with the usual naval avarice. Spain never lost a treasure fleet during this war. Oh, they will later. But these English efforts were a strategic success nevertheless a point very often missed by historians, mainly because the Spanish had to devote so much effort to protecting their treasure fleets that their strategic options narrowed and their many bankruptcies followed from their overstretch. Basically, all this Spanish need to rebuild their fleets and provide increased defenses all over the world did their little bit by bit by bit to drain Spanish power. And more than that, they often started to sail at suboptimal times of year to avoid pirates, and so lost more ships and cargoes to bad weather. Overall, Spanish, and by now I mean combined Spanish-Portuguese attrition, climbed from one merchant ship in ten voyages to one in four on ocean-going voyages. Not sexy, kind of boring, I know, attrition. But this wins wars. And not just this war, but the Napoleonic Wars and World War II and others can in part be explained this way not sexy. You can't take losses like one in four very long and keep fighting. The Revenge was part of a 22-ship fleet, one of six major warships in the fleet that was hanging out off the island of Flores in the Azores. The Spanish answered with a 55-ship fleet. Oh yeah, take that. Uh, The Spanish had good intelligence. Basically, they maneuvered to have the English surrounded and then screwed everything up. Or did they? Instead of pouncing, they delayed their attack because one ship had a problem with a bowsprit, a far forward mast, they needed to fix. 
I mean, 55 ships, what are the odds there isn't a similar problem going on at any possible moment? So this delay, combined with their main attack coming from the wrong direction given the wind that day, gave the English fleet a chance to escape. It was a very near thing. They barely made it. So, did the Spanish deliberately let the English escape? Sun Tzu-like? They would never admit it. It was just bad luck. Ah, the bowsprit got fouled. They got away. I mean, damn, they got away. The revenge did not escape. We can't totally be sure why, but they sailed straight at the Spanish fleet, outnumbered 55 to 1. I mean, all 55 couldn't get at them at once, of course, but still. Huge Spanish fleet, escaping little English fleet, and this one ship charging like a berserker on Stamford Bridge straight at them. It was crazy. To the Spanish it was proof. The English did not care whether they lived or died. The Spanish wouldn't know, but disease had reduced the number of effective English sailors by half. So maybe they were just crazed with fever. Maybe escape required a maneuver like tacking and they lacked an adequate number of top men. Revenge went straight for the enormous San Felipe. But the seemingly lumbering galleon was able to turn at the last minute and ram revenge, and a whole boarding party jumped down onto revenge. But the Spanish were shocked when the English kept their cool and blasted the San Felipe at short range. Well, point-blank range. And the San Felipe fell away, to the dismay of the boarding party, oh no, and was too busy trying to stay afloat to participate in the fight any longer. Next, the huge San Barnabé was able to come up on the revenge's other side and grapple and tie the ships close together. But three of the Spanish boarding party were still alive and were able to escape onto the San Bernabé. But the Spanish on the San Bernabé contented themselves with exchanging musket and light gunfire with revenge instead of boarding. No one was throwing firebombs or setting off big guns because they all knew their fate was shared now. A fire on one would be a fire on the other. But now the Spanish could not use long-range gunfire against revenge either for fear of hitting their own ship. No problem. Boarding is what the Spanish were supposed to be good at. So the San Cristobal sailed up to Revenge's stern and dumped elite marines onto her deck. Well, I mean, the men of Revenge were pressed men, scum of the streets of London and Plymouth, but they would join the Spartans at Thermopylae in the stories of heroes. Castilian marines pressed forward as far as the main mast, and then the English ducked or got below decks in unison somehow, and light guns from the forecastle blasted them and the dazed marines were driven off by the Jactar's counterattack. Meanwhile, the bow of San Cristobal was being shattered to pieces by the stern guns of revenge, and it left the fight too. The next Spanish ship did even worse. It was a survivor of the Armada. Their borders were also defeated, and their ship sank. No problem. Another Carrick tried boarding from the bows, but point-blank fire from revenge sank that too, after their borders were also defeated. So now, after 14 hours of fighting, the English would have been exhausted. Maybe still 70 on their feet were alive out of, out of a crew of 250, and very few of those would have been unwounded. Grenville, the captain, had been shot but was holding on. Who knows if they could have kept fighting. But Grenville ordered the powder magazine to be blown, and this was too much for the men. They surrendered, with honorable terms which the Spanish were relieved to accept. The Spanish treasure fleet arrived, and so did God's judgment. 
A storm, the Spanish reported as sudden, without warning, sank the damaged ships. Six more treasure ships saw that 23 of 80 ships of the treasure fleet sunk during that, quote, successful, unquote, voyage. Two more warships and the now Spanish Revenge sank as well. Now, did all this really go the way I described it? Did the Spanish lose 10 ships and see their elite marines defeated by the dregs of the streets again and again? Yeah, mostly that happened. But if some of the details are wrong, it doesn't matter because that's how the story went out at the time. And the psychological impact on English and Spanish both were based off the story. Hacklett and many other writers told the literate English public that their destiny lay in overseas empire. And it seems they were believed. But Elizabethan England could not grasp this opportunity. Their arms were not long enough. If I describe Spain as stretched, with too much to do, not enough skill and money to do it, well, that's even more true for England. War in Ireland, the United Provinces, the naval war with Spain was all that could be managed. And I'm tempted to revisit the Armada story because I keep running into a logical error first introduced to me by Scott Alexander. Going back to the Armada maybe won't help. Uh, We have two more Armadas to cover before we can end this war. But there's a kind of faulty reasoning you see again and again, and it's over divine intervention against the Armada, which some people used to truly believe in. And now we might say Mother Nature defeated the Spanish, but really, come on, same thing. So historians look this problem right in the face and then turn away. Here's the bad reasoning. Say abstract concept A, the more it is supported by evidence as true, tends to support the idea that abstract concept B might also be true. But abstract concept B, if true, would threaten sacred value C. Therefore, we're going to attack or ignore the truth of A in order to undermine B. And this method of argument should have a name, but I don't know it. And anyway, keep on the alert for it. When you read it, it is sloppy thinking. Another fascinating voyage happened in 1591. A fleet of 10 ships, including one impressive 200-ton ship, but mostly little guys in the 30 to 100-ton range. And one of the captains was the one-armed Christopher Newport, set off to capture the Spanish treasure fleet sailing from Mexico. As all these pirate stories tend to do, they captured a rich prize off the coast of Spain right away. Silver and hides and wine. And then they went on to Cuba, where they captured another couple of ships, good cargoes there too, and they learned that a seriously large Spanish war fleet was around, but they decided to take their chances. The Spanish were coming to sweep the seas in advance of the treasure fleet. And soon enough, they ran into this full-size Spanish fleet where the two biggest ships were individually as big as the entire little English fleet. Well, the insane English get into a regular fleet battle, my fleet versus your fleet fight with the Spanish, and pretty soon one of the little ships goes boom, just explodes into little pieces, so they scatter. But they all regroup a couple days later and at some point meet up with a random pirate out by its lonesome and it turns out to be full of old friends. Isn't that just the best? I mean, there you are out plundering off the coast of Cuba and you accidentally meet an old friend. That's just the best. Well, they have a lot of prizes, so some of them sail for home with their prizes while six wait and hope for the treasure fleet. Even though they should probably consider themselves the hunted instead of the hunters by now. 
Maybe they figured the Spanish would never expect them to be stupid enough to hang around in the same place. At one point, two little ships come upon a huge 300-ton Spanish war galleon, bigger than both ships combined, outgunning and outnumbering them. The little ships attacked, like good Englishmen do, and took the galleon. It's ridiculous and impossible, but yeah. They plundered it for stores and burned it down. Meanwhile, they captured four more cargo ships, kept two as store ships, and burned the other two. The next day, they spotted the treasure fleet. One ship, far out in front of the rest, so they ganged up on it, boarded, and took it. It turned out to be the Santa Trinidad, loaded with silver. So they figured they, like Georgie Porgy, better get out of there before the big boys come out to play, and they sailed off for home. Prizes were valued at 40,000 pounds, and this is a post-pilfering 40,000 pounds, so everyone got rich. Crown, investors too, which included Drake and Raleigh. And uh, I guess I'll stop with the pirate stories here. The richest prize taken during the war was the Madre de Dios, capture of which is also pretty thrilling. But it is a fascinating example of pilfering. I've mentioned pilfering several times, but haven't fully explained it. The prize was probably worth half a million pounds. It was more than the annual revenue of the government. But after some truly massive pilfering, it was only, only worth 140,000 pounds when it was secured in port by Raleigh. It was also an inspiration for the formation of the East India Company about 10 years later. The Queen sent Robert Cecil to have a look, and he said that starting about seven miles outside of town, uh, this was Dartmouth, Every person he met smelled of pepper and cloves. Oh, and Robert Cecil, he was a hunchback. And rather than being defined by his disability, he became one of the most powerful men in the realm, serving under Elizabeth and then James Stuart. I'm sure it helped that he was the son of William Cecil, one of the geniuses Elizabeth collected, and a leader of the government. And Elizabeth referred to him as her monkey, James as his beagle. So he had to put up with being made fun of, but he was a highly capable administrator and allowed to be one, which is the crucial point. So here's an early example of the tolerance I mentioned before, allowing the crown to be served by the best talents despite the many prejudices of the time. All right, so we should still cover piracy and privateers. Privateers! Privateers are not pirates! And then I have to mention Ireland and the other two Spanish armadas. The fact that France is in the grip of nine religious civil wars, you could say 17 civil wars if you define them differently. It takes 30 years, and for France, it's a horrible mess. And the curious growth of Puritan power. And then we'll do some financial and economic stuff uh, to lay groundwork in episode 35. And maybe throw in a little Shakespeare. So early voyages were licensed by the crown often in a public-private financial partnership, kind of a special-purpose vehicle for a single pirate venture. And once Philip gobbled up Portugal, there was a Portuguese pretender in England issuing letters of mark, in effect, although I forget the actual term for the license. A letter of mark legitimizes a pirate attack because you are, in effect, acting as an agent for a valid power. Therefore, you can buy and sell in neutral ports and aren't subject to the usual death penalty for piracy. We discussed this in the context of William of Orange. As a prince of the Holy Roman Empire, he could legitimize Dutch pirates in episode 14. 
Then, we like to use the word privateer for these people, sailing under letters of mark, but let's not forget there were often acts of piracy and privateering on the same voyage. You're far from home? There are no witnesses? Who's to say? For context, access to Antwerp, England's prime export market for wool, was often cut off due to the Dutch revolt we've talked so much about. In Spain, there were voices arguing for allowing the English to trade in Spain and the Americas. This was a realist approach. I mean, those English have a lot of good ships, and they're building more. The English crown paid a bonus of five shillings to shipbuilders for every ton over a hundred tons. And these ships are going to be used somehow, so let them trade freely. Everybody wins. But Philip said no. The religious identity issue mentioned before overcame the realist approach. But am I leaning too hard on this religious identity issue? I've mentioned it over and over. But, well, it was part of one of the most foolish things the crown, the Spanish crown, ever did. This was Philip's son, Philip III, the expulsion of the Moriscos. And these were converts from Islam, particularly around Valencia. They were very successful merchants. Well, Philip III forced them all to leave Spain, maybe as many as 750,000 of them, and the result was a severe economic depression, as a significant chunk of the most talented people in the southern regions fled the country. And I've mentioned that shortly before Drake's 1585 voyage, there was an unusually large number of English ships in Spanish harbors, and Philip ordered them seized. And part of Drake's mission was to demand their return. Oh, we already let them go, the Spanish told him. Well, back home, merchants could then get what were, in effect, letters of mark from the Lord Admiral to get compensation for seized cargoes, to wage private war. The Lord Admiral got a cut, 10%, and he was very venal, so pirates could come to England with rich cargoes and get backdated commissions. Great stuff. Normally they'd hang you, but if the Lord Admiral gets a 10% cut, you're golden. And once the war was fully started in 1588, it became even easier to get into the privateering business. And just what else were those ships and crews going to do when other avenues were closed to them? I've already mentioned the one sense in which the, the pirates won the war, by inglorious attrition. The Spanish ports were turning out ships of good quality and impressive quantity, but not fast enough. And it cost too much. Defeat by bankruptcy. Well, Spain was still the greatest power and many victories lay ahead, but not against the English. But there are two other notable defeats we should mention. I've mentioned five armadas, whereas if you ever hear about more than one, you hear about those other two that were shattered by God before even getting very far from port. So I mentioned those three and described them as destroyed by God. At the time, they would have said destroyed by Jehovah's breath. And I think that's fair, because that was how the English saw it, and the Spanish too, at least quite a few of them did. I mean, the thought of invasions from overseas by very murdery people was terrifying, and victory from the hand of God was just assumed by the English. I mean, this is not like your football team winning the Super Bowl or the FA Cup. Remember the Viking episode where Cammy imagined how frightening it would be to see a Viking fleet pull up to your village? That's the level of what was at stake. Even Shakespeare and Henry V about Agincourt, and I know I have a few Shakespeare haters listening, 
so this will be short. O God, thy arm was here, and not to us, but to thy arm alone, ascribe we all, when without stratagem, but in plain shock and even play of battle, was ever known so great and little loss on one part and on the other? Take it, God, for it is none but thine. God has fought for us. Jeremy Black quotes this to show the pattern of response to the victory over the Spanish Armada. And do note the psychological move that goes along with the claim of divine favor. This move of attributing success to someone else is a power move. The best CEOs I've worked with do it all the time. It not only plays out honesty, but acts out self-confidence and fairness to others. In not taking credit for victory, or this long series of victories, they were actually taking another kind of credit as superior human beings for whom anything is possible. I've hit this point pretty hard. The English self-conception is now something pretty special. Many of the big-picture history writers find this vital. Others pick nits. I've seen the complaint that Haller overemphasized the effect of Fox, and it must be said that the pictures in the Book of Martyrs probably had as big an impact as the words. But I'm trying to say that it was not just this narrow religious view. It was seen to be acted out by someone as open, perceptive, and great-hearted as Shakespeare. It was Fox plus Drake plus the Armadas plus more. And I'll leave it here for the week as a fitting prelude to discussing grand strategy next week after Conversations with Cammie. Thank you for listening. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, and those are birds you hear in the background. We are outside, and we've just listened to episode 32. What'd you think? I really enjoyed your descriptions of the battles of the, the galleons versus those little determined English ships. Kaboom! Kaboom. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of like the story we tell children about the little engine that could. I think oh, I yeah. can, I think I can, I think I can. Mm -hmm. It's very much like that. And even though the revenge lost, how mighty the fight was. And so that it was, yeah, he was picturing. But of course, in a battle. sense, they won. Uh, just like the Spartans at Thermopylae, in a certain sense, won. Right. Their reputation was solid. They showed themselves to be formidable fighters. And, and do you and really want to fight them again? Uh. I'll think twice before I board one of their ships. Oh, and, and the, that pirateering business, so much of the reward came from those spices. It wasn't just gold and silver and jewels. There was all the gold and silver from the Americas. There was gold dust from the Guinea coast. And from the Spice Islands, there were the spices, which... Remember, the Portuguese kept the supply of spices relatively low, and they kept the prices high, as high as the old uh, overland Venetian route. Right. But and so, you know, at this time, those spices were, you know, more valuable than silver, pound for pound. Right. And if memory serves, going clear back to my high school years, those spices weren't just for flavoring, they're for preserving food. Is that correct? That's kind of a myth. A common one I remember that I used to hear was that they would use pepper to cover the flavor of rancid meat. But people at the time who could afford pepper 
weren't also eating rancid meat. Yeah, I think that one is one that I was taught too, but it's been pretty exploded by now. It sounds like the English felt like they deserved their self-perception, their very high standards of themselves. Well, they felt like they had entered into effectively a covenant with God. Episode 17, I think. We covered William Haller's book, The Elect Nation, and you see a lot of it in Patrick O'Brien's work as well. The high English self-perception. I can see where they got that. That little, you know, I can do it attitude and not giving up in battle. They don't just roll over and forfeit. And then the use of great talents in their government, despite the prejudice. I appreciate the information about the English allowing the crown to be served by the greatest talents, despite prejudice. Normally, I would imagine the hunchback wouldn't have been regarded highly in that society. Yeah, definitely not. That was uh, would be a serious, serious disability. Not in the sense of a disability for the person, but in the way that, that they'd be regarded by everyone else. But in England, uh, it was a little different. So it seems to me that they were a bit more progressive than some other societies of the time. Yeah, certainly they had this reputation for tolerating eccentricity, and I think that really helped them with toleration for people who were on the autistic spectrum. Yeah, and as you know, I'm concerned that we're losing that tolerance today, and it'll come at a great cost. Agreed. There's so many gifts, say, the autistic or other communities can provide us, can see things differently and express things differently. And, and can add such wonderful advances to our society even today. I feel like there's already a lot of human suffering comes from that loss of tolerance for people on the spectrum. Well, that's what an airplane flying right overhead sounds like. <laughs> so what do we know much more about our friend Robert, who was a hunchback? Did he have family? Did he stay prominent through the years in um, advising He's, he gets loaded up with responsibility uh, by James I, the king that followed Elizabeth. Yeah, he lives out his life as, a, as you know, one of the most prominent men in the country. Yeah, he was married, had two children, ended up with many great-grandchildren. So he won life in that sense. And he was also made Earl Salisbury before the end. Well, it sounds like he had a pretty good life. It's good to hear a good story among the people that, that worked with the Crown. Thanks for coming on the program, Kenny. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. 